What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Healthspan Academy. I'm your host, Craig Shearhart, and with me today is Mr. Matt Wenning, who is a huge figure in the world of strength and conditioning. He started his academic career with a Bachelor of Exercise Science and a Master's in Biomechanics at Ball State University. He's a three-time world champion powerlifter. He's directed over 6,000 troops in strength, conditioning, and wellness for the U.S. Army. He's also been an advisor for the NFL. He's an international speaker for the National uh, Strength and Conditioning Association. And he's the head of winning strength, which is basically a platform of, of programming and, and services for coaching strength development. So today is all about how to get freakishly strong with, with Matt. Matt, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, not a problem. Awesome. So I want to kick this off. I was reading your bio um, and I've followed your content. It seems like uh, football was, was a big focus for you. Talk a little bit about your athletics and, and how uh, that kind of came into your life. Yeah, well, um, a lot of people, I mean, I talk about it quite a bit, but still people don't know. Um, when I was six years old, I was hit by a car, broke my legs. I was homeschooled for an entire year. Wow. Um, ass all the way up to my crotch. Oh, man. Um, battered my pelvis, broke my right leg in six places and my left in four. Oh. Um, so with that being said, when I started to get back out of cast and be able to move again, running and even gait, just normal gait walking was, was, was difficult. So, right. um, so I gravitated to swimming at first and I was a, more of a sprinter. I was yeah. still a big no matter what. So yeah. I really gravitated towards the 50 and 100 freestyle because I could use a lot of upper body power. Huh. Um, that helped develop my shoulders and my arms and um, my back. Yeah. And so about the time I was, I'd say 11, uh, my uncle had come to live with us for a little short, a short time while he was looking for a different job. Right. And he had a sand filled set of weights and, and he brought with him and he huh. was bench pressing. And, uh, I asked if I could jump in and bench with him. You know, it's my older uncle. He's a cool, yeah, yeah, for sure. he's a cool muscular uncle that always had, you know, manual labor jobs and always had abs. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, sure. So he starts to take some weight off and I said, no, I'll do the weight you're doing, you know, not knowing anything. And so that's amazing. Stop arguing with me after about 30 seconds. He's like, well, fine. If you want to try it, you can try it. Yeah. And it was like 135 for eight reps at like 11 years old. And what? yeah, I mean, wow. I was already a pretty good bencher because I was swimming so many laps. That's wild. That's not where I thought that story was going. <laughs> That's crazy. I had, a, I had a pretty decent upper body strength already. Yeah. yeah. So that started to get some wheels turning, not immediately, yeah. but in the next year. Um, and so going into sixth grade, uh, I knew the next year we were able to play full pads, full tackle, right. full. Yeah. And my legs were behind because um because of the car accident sure. so i thought being a fairly smart younger kid now looking back well, maybe if i go to the gym and train my legs they'll get better mm. and they'll be able to withstand the impact and the running right so i go there i don't really know what i'm doing i'm doing a lot of weird machines i mm. see a handful of guys squatting but not very many and after a couple of weeks of really going in there, I'd say probably pretty much every day, um, I was following like Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding and I had the book with me and I was looking nice. through it. I didn't know the difference between strength or power or right. size and yeah. that. Yeah. I wish muscles, but I was following something. And one of the lifters just so happened to be a world, um, a world teenage champion back in the day. Oh, wow. His name Smith. And he was a 500 pound bencher at 181 body weight wow so That's this wild. dude beastie strong huh. and i 
never seen him in the gym, but I kind of stayed away because I didn't know him at all. And they were they were all in their early mid thirties, and I was just a kid, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so he sees me in there every day, busting my ass, and he comes up to me and he's like, "You know, hey, you're pretty big for a for a high school kid. You ought to come and train with us." And I said, "Well, I'm in sixth grade." And he <laughs> what? You couldn't believe it. I was like three years older than I was, and that's crazy. He's like, well, definitely come and train with us now. So yeah, I tell. Wanting to be a bodybuilder and wanting to have a lot of muscle and yeah. be a football player, and he's just laughing because he's like, "Dude, you're built to be a powerlifter. Like, you need to yeah. worry about lifting maximal weights, you know, instead of looking <laughs> good." So, huh. he kind of directs me towards that that way. And the first meet I go to, which I just turned 13, so it was the first division that they had back then was the 13 14 division. Right. So benching 250 at 13 oh. years old. Wow. Did it with full commands. I mean, it was a non-sanctioned meet, but it was still that's incredible, um, impressive, right? Sure. And uh, so that really started the fire under me to see what I could do because the coaches, the guys that, like Timmy and the big bencher I was telling you, they they were like, they were like, man, if you can hold on to this for ten or fifteen years and train really hard and not get hurt, you could be really good. Yeah. So my whole mindset was to be really good at even at that age. I was really thinking about being the best I could be around 25 or 30. I never thought that I would be good faster because my legs were so beat up. Right. That it would take me time to be a good squatter and deadlifter just based on those facts. Sure. Uh, so my patience was never a problem. I really just loved to go in and train really hard. And so everything that I did goal-wise as far as the records and accomplishments was all just icing on the cake. I mean, I just like yeah. to go in and yeah, that's unreal. I gotta, I gotta say, man, <laughs> just because you mentioned like swimming and that that prepped you for bench press, having trained the varsity swimmers, I can just say that's definitely not the norm. People that have been swimming like their whole teenage years, they don't just jump and like all of a sudden crush the bench press. Obviously, you yeah. got some some genetic gifts there. Yeah, I was too big to be a a good swimmer. I was, you know, at that time, yeah. I was probably five foot eight. I wasn't done growing yet, and I was already like one hundred and seventy pounds. Wow. So I was a big kid. That's so that being said, one, two, you have to remember, um, a lot of the great benchers, I I know this for a fact. I know Swim Hack, um, I can't remember what his full name is, but he was an amazing swimmer. Really? And all seven hundred pound bencher. Huh. So I think there is nation with swimming and benching. Obviously, if you're a Michael Phelps, you're not gonna be a good bench presser. Yeah, yeah, true enough. If you're just a decent athlete trying to swim. Mm. True. The ability over to the bench press from a kid would be pretty high because your work capacity in the shoulders and the arms would be, you'd be used to swimming laps and laps and laps. So doing yeah. an hour out with weights would not be. Yeah. yeah. Especially you if, you've have, got a, if you've got a good coach that, that knows what they're doing for sure, you, it's, it's going to end up being a good base. Yeah. yeah. What the problem is with swimming, especially at the youth level, I wouldn't say the coaches know what they're doing. Yeah. That's but, the thing. I, I would say I was very lucky that swimming didn't damage me. I never, I only mm. swam on this club team in the summer. Yeah. Um, I never really swam all year long, which was a huge savior for me. Yeah. And then the weights, like I said, caught me by the time I was in high school and I stopped swimming about my freshman, sophomore year. I just was so much of a better lifter. It was no yeah. point. Yeah. It's like, those two aren't necessarily synonymous too. As your as your body gets denser, you tend to <laughs> tend to sink a little more. That's wild. And I was surprised actually hearing that John Wilburn was a pretty com- competitive swimmer in his day too. It's just I guess there's there's 
more more bodybuilders and powerlifters, I guess, that have that background. Um, yeah, I think building that work capacity. You're a kid. You learn yeah. to get up, early, learn to train your yeah. ass off. Absolutely. The, you yeah. know what? when you're older, it's not a big deal to train hard. Yeah, so true. Um, so I want to chat about how this kind of landed into, into coaching. At what point did you decide that that was something you you wanted to, to pursue? Well, being from a small town, there wasn't a lot of options. So mm. when I first started, I never intended to be a coach. I just wanted to learn more to get better myself. Right. About 1999, um, my mom is in charge of the local hospital surgical area. Mm. And she works with a lady that had a son that was probably, I don't know, five, seven years older than me. And he was an accountant wizard. And he ended up being an accountant for the Colts. And so I accidentally, just by chance, run into him in the hallway. And he knew who I was. Oh, wow. And Hey, what you what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm up here visiting mom. And he's like, he's like, what are you going to do after after high school? And I said, well, I don't really know. I mean, I'd like to do something with weights. Yeah, I see as maybe like personal trainers at the Y. I don't, you know, there wasn't a lot about strength conditioning at the time or anything. He goes, well, shit, you ought to go over and talk to uh, the head strength coach at the Colts and see how he got his job. Yeah, which <laughs> I was touring, which he was there from like '97 to 2013, the same team. Oh wow! So he great strength coach. Yeah, and ended up getting me a job shadow with John Torine, and John Torine recognized me for me being on the news because uh, the Indianapolis News had come down to uh, train me lifting, and I had benched like forty six reps with two twenty five. Oh wow! Old, so I had just smashed everybody combine. That's at 19, wild. Like right around combine time, so they were. Uh, Anthony Calhoun was the newscaster and was like. How many times do you think you can bench 225? And I was like, I don't know, probably close to 50. So yeah. while he's interviewing me, I'm in the background, just boom, 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 just wow. cranking 25. And so John Torrey had already seen me on the news. So yeah, fair enough. Say to me than just some kid walking in that was uh, just job shadowing. Yeah. So sat down, told me, hey, if you want this job, you're probably going to need to get a master's degree. Right. You're going to go to school, which kind of, took the wind out of my sails a little because, mm. you know, I thought that I could just be big and strong and I could teach other people how to do that. Yeah. So that kind of sucked on one respect. But the other thing was he goes, he didn't know where I was from. He knew I was like semi-local mm. and I said, well, I'm up from Muncie. And he goes, Oh, well, ball state's there. And I'm thinking, yeah, ball state, the college that I grew up around. What about it? You know, like it's not a big deal. And yeah. he goes, number one exercise science program in the country right now. Wow. And I was like, no way. So I'm thinking <laughs> back home, my hometown, which is like 60,000 people yeah. has the college for what I want to go to school for. I mean, so it's game over. Yeah, that's wild. Very cool. So that's kind of that started. And then I just got engulfed in school and, uh, you know, and then uh, the first thing that the best advice that it ever gave to me was John Torrey told me, whoever the head strength coach is at Ball State, I want you to go down there and I want you to work as many hours and volunteer as much as you can. Yeah, He goes, those are your biggest connections that you can make at the school. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And Wade wasn't a retired NFL football player. He had a ton of connections. Yeah. So my first partnership was University of Texas. So I was already in the coaching circle just based on the fact that I went and applied myself. But you'd be surprised at how many college kids would be in school for, say, strength conditioning. Mm -hmm. And they don't even know who the head strength coach is at the local college. Yeah, that's wild. They're they're not going down there and assisting. Yeah. I mean, so they 
completely lost that particular connection, mm. which if that's what they want to do for a job is probably the largest connection they're going to have locally. Yeah. I feel like that's a downfall of a lot of university students. They just get head, head buried in the books and forget to make those contacts and stuff like and that. Really, yeah. There's going to be 5,000 people that year graduate with their yeah. degree have besides yeah. that because that's not really that degree doesn't really put you at the top of the list anymore. Now it's the degree plus everything else you're doing. Yeah, so true. So I want to talk to you a bit about the, the academics. Because actually, I I finished with a biomechanics degree the same year in 2005 from University of Toronto. What was oh, okay. your yeah? What was your thesis in? Um, I did it with different types of shoes and squat technique. Oh, cool, awesome. Yeah, uh, we didn't have time to publish it for me to for me to graduate, and I didn't really give a shit. So. Yeah. <laughs> Fair but what enough. we me- was we measured the kinematic data to see the shank angle change with an oh, elevated okay. with an well, elevated heel. I was using five hundred pound squatters, which for a study was pretty good. Yeah, their variance between each squat itself, let alone the shoe, was too much to really find out if that was a big adjustment. Mm. But what we noticed was I didn't have enough time to go deep into the into to the actual um, data. Right, was a massive change in foot pressure. Mm. But I thought that I was going to see a change in shank. Right. But yeah, I you, saw it foot pressure, but I didn't have enough time right. to to put that in the paper as well. Interesting. Yeah, we looked at uh, different shoe types and gait analysis briefly when I was at, at Laurier for a couple of years. Uh, so I, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that, that yeah, I'm just curious about that. That's wild, man. Um, so I got to ask you about the warm-ups. I think that's been something that's been highlighted, I think, uh, and and some of the the big names in the in the world of kind of strength and conditioning have, have referred to your warmups like uh Aaron Horsegig and at Squat University and guys like that. Um so I want to talk to you about um how you design a warm-up, not just for maybe for for training, but also for for a comp. Like what are the essential pieces for you? There's just a, a huge library we can choose from if everything from, you know, do we use cardio? Yeah. Do we do minimal Why cardio? Uh do we do dynamic stretching? How much passive do we add active pieces? Walk me through your your workout uh warm-up design kind of process. Well, the first thing you have to have is a library of variability. You have to be mm-hmm. able to know, I guess the biggest, the biggest point would be you have to know where your structural weak points are. Right. Once that, that lays the skeleton down for designing mm-hmm. the warm-up. Yeah. The next factor is what are you lifting that day? So what are you priming? So if you're doing a squat, you need to do a squat type movement to kind of dial in the form with a sub-maximal in, intent or and or weight. And then get that form immediately perfected with, say, almost 100 reps. It's Mm. almost um, what I call like greasing the joint. You're basically just going in, taking a squat. You're doing it 100 times, Mm. four sets of 25, and you're getting everything warm, dialed, mobile, and ready. Yeah. Actual motor pattern. So that's what I call timer. Yeah. The exercises that are selected are selected as major weak points of what you think that movement is. So mm. let's say a bench press, for example. Well, if I know I have a hard time keeping my lats tight and I have a hard time locking weights out or my triceps are deficient, well, that tells you right there that those two muscle groups need to be potentiated into the movement pre-strain. Mm. What I find is most people will utilize it and think that they have to keep going heavier and harder. But in reality, what you need to do is be consistent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand because yeah thrown down our throats that you have to go harder, harder, harder all the time to get better. Yeah. That's only partially true. 
the people that really get better are the ones that consistently load over extended periods of time. Yeah. So really the time component is more important than the intensity component. Mm-hmm. So what we utilize is an RPE or rate of perceived exertion scale. Yeah. That way it's adjustable depending on stress levels, right? So like say I had four or five more hours of work today than I had yesterday. Well, that automatically sets my training up to be diluted. Yeah. I think when people base things on percentages, they automatically set themselves up for failure because they're mm. probably basing a percentage off of their best. So the winning warmup is de- is um, derived from RPE scale, right. allowing 300 reps, four sets of 25 per exercise, one primer, and two major weakness points to dial in. And then what you start to find is as you train this way, if your general physical preparedness or conditioning allows, it actually enhances technical capacity in the main lift that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, I talked about that uh, with, with John Walter in a bit because you can point away from one RMs as well. Like I think, and the the variability athlete to athlete is the other thing he talked about. And it's what's interesting. It's just kind of light bulb went off when he said it. Like is that women's capacity at eighty percent is usually a lot higher rep range than it would be for for men. And little, little things like that. So going off of RPE or like small or lower rep uh max testing i think there's definitely a benefit to that it makes a lot of sense yeah um, i mean rpe scale i mean the russians even utilized it once the guys got to master level of training and you know i think percentages are good in the beginning because they mm-hmm. teach you to kind of have structure and they're easier to follow but yeah. once you have grasp on how your body adapts to training what things feel like and what is capable of your potential that day yeah. you need to Switch over to an RPE scale yeah. because it fluctuation and forces the body not to overreach. Yeah, I think that's the thing that people misunderstand mm-hmm. is that hard to overreach when you're a beginner because you don't have any strength to begin with. Yeah, but when you're insanely strong, the the fine line between too much and too little just starts getting narrower. Right. Yeah. Smart. Once you hit a genetic limit, only the smart guys are the ones that get stronger yeah. because they learn to work around the roadblocks. Yeah, that's so true. They hit a roadblock. There's two things they either do. They either keep hitting the same roadblock and create an injury or mm-hmm. they stop it backwards. Yeah. They don't learn around the roadblock. Yeah. And that really is in the case of education. You know, you can be the strongest guy in the world with the highest level of intensity. But once you start accumulating injuries, your training ability is going to go down no matter what yeah, you do. For sure. Absolutely. Well said. Um, and kind of segueing from that, um, there's different schools of thought and kind of periodization. I, you, I know you kind of focus on macro cycle, meso cycle. Um, talk about how you decide on when an athlete needs to deload or, or reload, I guess, when we talk about that stuff and periodization. How often? I think you talk about in the book about you know, doing the same kind of routine is sort of the enemy long-term. How often do you recommend changing up the frequency, rep volume, uh, those kind of variables? Well, the change is for multiple reasons, not just for programming efficiency, if I might say that. It's Mm -hmm. mostly a determinant of mileage. So what you realize is that if you squat with a straight bar a ton, you're going to start creating shoulder impingement issues. Your back's Mm -hmm. getting the same pressure at the same rate. All the knees and so true. Same pressure all the time. Yeah. So eventually, you do is learn how to get strong in a rotating fashion mm-hmm. because the body won't allow that level of specific mileage in those points for, say, a 20-year career. 
Right. So the problem that we have in strength conditioning right now is if you look at everything set up, they're trying to sell people four and six and eight week cycles of how to train. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I think you and I both know if we've been training long enough, 12 weeks is a minimal amount that you're going to need to train in order to see something change to yeah. a positive. So especially intermediate get, to advanced for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Broke that initial beginner gain. You're yeah. going to have to part the next gains coming. So mm-hmm. what I find is that that bases everything in 12 week waves. Mm-hmm. So if I know that it probably takes at least 12 weeks to see a positive change in something, then I'm going to stick with a similar loading scheme that 12 weeks as far right. as uh, what the purpose of that is. So maybe right, it's sure. a high, like off season. So now I'm going to fix left and right imbalances. So for me, a transitional season or an off season training cycle is going to be heavily reliant on stability, right. coordination, left to right balance you know, to make stuff. high lateral loading yeah. Yeah. at least as symmetrical as I possibly can be. Yeah. That tremendously from my car accident. So that that right there usually has two 12-week blocks distant distant and apart about six months. So mm-hmm. I would break my training up into six-month blocks, and I would do this almost for everybody mm-hmm. and anybody listening. If you create a six-month block, it's not necessarily that you have to do every rep and set that you write in that six months, but it gives you a long-term thinking approach right. that keeps training too specific too often. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I will do is I would look at my videos of my main lifts and say, do I feel like I need more hypertrophy, more rate of force development, more coordination? Um, am I missing things because I'm unstable? Yeah. Um, what factors now, once I have those factors, then I look at, okay, what feels good and what feels bad? Does my back feel good right now? Does my knees feel okay? Okay, mm-hmm. once you have that plan set, now you go back to your exercise library and you start to devise a plan of attack that has some unforeseen variability in it. Meaning mm-hmm. what I will do is right before I design, say, a six-month block, I'll go and look at lots of people that I look up to's channel and I'll see if they're doing exercises that maybe I haven't seen in a while. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, it's not the exercise, it's the what the exercise attacks. Right. So if you know that, say, a front squat, a high bar back squat, a zercher squat, a low bar narrow stance squat, let's just say those hit very similar muscle groups in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I can utilize those four or five different types of squatting. Now I have different resistance types that I can play with. Right. Bands, free weights, lighten method. Yeah. Okay, which of these have I used in the past six months? Which ones maybe haven't I used? Yeah. Then I foot positions, boxes, no boxes, and base all of this stuff around where I think my weakest links are. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's a lot of work, but in reality, when you get good at deciding what your weaknesses are and what you need, I can usually write my six-month workout plan out in roughly two or three, three three-hour blocks. Like So about nine hours, Mm -hmm. I have six months laid out pretty damn close to perfect. Yeah. But I would say that what you need to think of is in Isvan Bali, uh, I believe he's Canadian, was talking about this a ton. But he used to say, always think you're training in a train to train, train to compete, train to win. Yeah. So there's two seasons out of the year where I will push my maximal weights to the to the moon. 
But the other two times, the train to train and train to compete phases, I'm building a new foundation to peak those new numbers mm. off of. Right. And so that's the thing is always think, build the foundation, then work your way up the pyramid to the specific task at hand. If you think like that, you're going to see it's a six-month process, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's going to force you to not train too specifically for an extended period of time, therefore creating problems. Yeah, I love that. And I think like even just from a motivation standpoint, it's it's good to have a little bit of idea of what's going on six months down the road instead of just six weeks. I think there's a psychological piece there. It's a, that's a uh, side benefit. Yeah, I love that. I want to talk a little bit about the the cardio piece, and I think this is. Um, I think there's maybe some evidence that some cardio is going to help strength athletes. Some some are like completely won't do it at all. Some will just do sprint versus kind of long aerobic. How do you decide on whether there should be cardio involved in a, in someone that's looking to get stronger, and 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 then what kind of volume and and sort of uh, pieces would you recommend if you, yeah. if you if they are looking at cardio as as part of their program? Well. The first thing you want to do is know what your body fat is. I mean, if you're, Mm -hmm. let's just say 12% body fat, you're an X division one athlete, you are insanely muscular with low body fat, your cardiovascular needs are going to be very different than a person that decides they want to lift weights at 22 and have never touched anything and are sitting at 35% body fat. So that's my first inclination of is cardio needed. I mean, I'm kind of one of those hybrid lifters where I truly believe not necessarily cardio, but general physical preparedness is immense in mm-hmm. making pain gains because I got to a certain point where I was at world record levels and I couldn't show it because I wasn't fit enough, huh. which is why warmups were created in the first place. Oh, wow. I had a mindset of pre-fatigue, right. but in reality, now was a mindset of potentiation. Mm. Now, fast forward or thinking up from a different standpoint, the first thing I would look at is body fat percentage. The next thing I would look at is what's the person's resting heart rate. The third thing I would look at is I take them through what I feel in their strength range is a good winning warmup. And if their heart rate goes above 140, I already know that they're not in, they're not in good shape. Mm. Yeah. Second, if we do the winning warmup and I give them three to five minutes rest and they can't show me what they can max on a max effort day because, oh, I'm too tired. The warmup just kicked my mm. ass automatically know that their physical fitness level is way too low right. to make progress. So yeah. the is we come back down to that pyramid scheme mm-hmm. of base of your pyramid, which includes a great amount to a great extent, your general physical preparedness or cardio is going to allow you to recover from the hard workouts and allow you to train what I consider the density. Mm-hmm. So people look at my workouts and go, man, I don't have enough time to do 300 reps for warmups, then a main lift, then accessories. What they don't understand is if they come to the gym, all of that's done in 55 minutes. Right. Which yeah. means you have to be in impeccable shape to do that. Yeah, true. So what I find is that most people working out tend to ignore and poorly manipulate the time constraint. Hmm. So how many times do we hear, oh, yeah, I was in the gym last night for two hours. What were you doing for two <laughs> You get what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. the other you have those hormones, you have you have androgen depletion after about 55, 60 minutes anyway. Yeah. So for people, they're not fit enough to find that anabolic window mm. to make sure that all of their training is doing positive anabolic progress. But back to your major question is cardio is important, but I think it's more important in anaerobic conditioning. Yeah. So read a lot of the old Soviet Eastern Bloc texts 
Mm-hmm. They talk about sustaining anaerobic conditioning and that sustains strength and cardio. Yeah. Meaning yeah. playing a 50 pound kettlebell for two minutes. That's yeah. not that long, but that's hard. Oh, yeah. So heavy enough for sure. I'm sure you lit after that. I probably bet you could walk for three miles and not get winded. Yeah. <laughs> so true. But other way around, right? So yeah. I can see guys do a light jog for a mile. Give them a 50 pound kettlebell and watch them swing it for two minutes. They can't even do it. Yeah. So it is a transferability issue with cardiovascular training in and of itself. Yeah. I, for the strength athlete, the best thing you can do is a high incline walk mm-hmm. because you reduce impact. You're already pushing on the spine and doing a lot of compressive movements. Right. So you base your cardio on needs to be traction or limited compression. So that's mm-hmm. why I like a high incline treadmill because you have to step up to the treadmill. Yeah. So there is no impact. Yeah. But it's extremely hard. True. Yeah. I also walking with the treadmill off, dragging sleds with weight vests on, mm. things that are causing me to have to be very tired in between one to two minutes versus yeah. out too long. Um, but you know, Stan and I have both come to a efforting and become to a, a good agreement that I feel that even strongly trained weightlifters still need anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes of walking a day hmm. just to maintain a certain amount of steps. Right. And that actually heal from the training. It's more for recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, that's the next thing I want to ask you about is recovery. So uh, different schools of thought. And I think within, within the strength world, within the bodybuilding world, within the CrossFit world, uh, and I th- I'd assume it's a little bit different athlete to athlete, but what, what is the go-to if you had to like pick a piece, is it mobility? Is it sleep? Is it, uh, is it stretching? Is it active recovery? Where does someone start? They got limited time. How do you start to prioritize what they should be doing for, in terms of recovery? Well, I think we all know by now that there is no replacement for quality and quantity of sleep. Mm. Sleep is the recovery tool. So yeah. what I find if we were to go over to my counter right now, Almost all the supplements that I have sitting on my counter are for sleep mm. help, yeah. like glycinate, right? Yeah. So my point is, I even take some CBD every once in a while. But yeah. the point is, anything you can do to enhance sleep quality is going to enhance performance. It's a yin-yang situation. Mm-hmm. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. So anything you're doing for recovery, in my personal opinion, if you don't have a lot of money or time, focus on sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say you're in a perfect world and sleep's not an issue and time's not an issue and maybe even money's not an issue. I truly believe that things like a good massage therapist are Mm. very, very uh, useful. I believe that, especially in the terms of rolfing and deep tissue massage, um, especially when you get used to it. Um, I'm also a huge fan of hot, cold contrast. Mm. Um, I learned that a ton from... Verkashansky used to use that with all the Olympic lifters mm-hmm. and they saw massive spikes in growth hormone output, which is helping the body recover faster anyway. Right. So I'm a fan of hot, cold water contrasts. Um, I'm a fan of sauna, but only in the winter time mm-hmm. when, cause my gym doesn't have any air conditioning. So when you we go in the heat. sauna, it's 105 in there. Yeah. <laughs> what I find is it helps my work capacity tremendously, yeah. but if you're in cool climate constantly, uh, sauna can be very good as well. Yeah. Uh, the other big thing is just having a set time that you wake up and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, they you get exposed to sunlight immediately when you wake up. Yeah. Uh, 
that circadian rhythm mm-hmm. helps with hormone production. Yeah. Um, getting a, an ample amount of sunlight every day yeah. is going to help vitamin D and recovery and just making natural hormones. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that I think that recovery can be a huge tool. I think that people, and especially the supplement companies, tend to overcomplicate it Mm. and try to, you know, mask other problems with pre-workouts and stimulants when in reality, I don't take any of that. I don't need any of it because everything else is in the right alignment. Yeah, fair enough. So when when you're in in competition mode, Matt, what what is a good night's sleep for you? Is it eight hours? Is that the kind of magic number or what did it Uh look like? Usually, well, when I was competing, you'd be surprised. So I would go to bed around 8.39, yeah. try to fall at 9.30. I'd get up somewhere around 7, so that's about nine hours. Mm, yeah. Then I would get up and train um, in the morning at that time because yeah. I have certain training partners that didn't have real jobs. Mm. So what I would do is I'd get up and train, and then I would go eat. Then I would work a couple of hours, literally like a couple of hours, and I'd go back home and sleep again. Yeah. So I would bed from... 8 30 to 7 and then back to bed from 2 to 4. Wow. And that's what I absolutely needed to recover. It was no ifs, ands, or buts. That's wild. So about about 11 hours a day of sleep. That's wild. I would have, uh, you know, I hear the CrossFit Games athletes like hit nine and a half, ten. 10. I, I figured it'd be less than that, but that's, I guess, I mean, you're moving big weight and you've got that much more muscle mass to recover. I guess it makes sense. Extreme. They do extreme shit, but it's longer periods. We do extreme stuff and it's over in a matter of seconds but the expenditure yeah and the pressure of the things that we do is so much higher yeah I you know i think when dr kramer measured me and i was only squatting like in the low 800s at the time when i was in college they did a blood <laughs> test on me on a heavy day and my total number was 660 wow so wow. you talk about making some major pressure on your cells right yeah absolutely so yeah, so my stolic and dystolic was that high combined. Huh. But um, so I think the damage we're like top field dragsters and CrossFit guys are more like rally racers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, they're, still, they're still going fast, but they're not they're not doing zero to sixty in like you know one point one seconds. You know that's, what I mean? That's true. Yeah, there is some heavy testing, but I think that's not obviously not the focus. They're built for more capacity stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, cool. Um, I noticed you got some some stuff on the website for nutrition, and this is something that you know there's the infinite number of kind of nutrition solutions. Um, when we talk about strength specifically, when athletes are, do you is is protein the first priority you, you talk about? Is it total calories, or um, how do you start walking someone through a better nutrition program to optimize well, their strength? Yeah, the big thing is, especially I think for all athletes, but especially strength athletes, is there is no. Proteins, fats, and carbs all are equally important for various reasons. Right. Protein is going to be there to help regenerate muscle tissue. Yeah. It's going to be there for satiety if you're trying to maintain weight class. Yeah. Fat are hormonally needed to make testosterone and all mm. the other hormones you're going to need to be your best. Yeah. So you your fat's too low and carbohydrates is your energy source. Yeah. Um, and you know, your body, especially as a power strength athlete is going to rely heavily on ATP, PCR and, and blood, blood glucose. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of utilizing all of those. I'm not, I don't like low carb. I don't like low fat and I sure don't like low protein. Right. But I think for the strength athlete, um, you have to find that balance. And for me, white rice was always the balance. And I learned that from Stan because I can mm-hmm. eat a lot of it. Yeah. Never any real body fat on me yeah. i never got 
from it and it absorbed very, very well. Mm. So you have to pick your carbs wisely. Yeah. Then the other end of that spectrum, the fats, you know, vitamin, all the fat soluble vitamins you just have to have mm. um, are primarily responsible for making testosterone. So yeah. getting good fats in is huge, but mm. that also means avoiding poor fats like trans fats and things yeah. that would make your digestive system not only be irritated, but also cause other health parameter issues down the road. Mm. Um, so I don't think that any one of them is more important than the other. We're designed to eat all of it. But the problem is, is understanding the portion amount that you need at what level. So like the last time I did a um, lean body mass test, I was 237.7 pounds of lean mass. Wow. <laughs> the amount of calories that I have to eat is just to sustain that. It's almost 4,300. Yeah, that's wild. So, but the average person is going to be around 150, 160 if they're yeah. pretty lucky. And so that means that they would almost nearly have 100 pounds less of lean mass. Yeah. So I try to find is that don't, when you're trying to figure out your calories, figure them out from your lean body mass number, not yeah. your body number. Because right. you don't want to bad the bad amount of cells. And I think that's where strength athletes get messed up is they think, well, I'm bulking so I can eat these poor calories. In reality, mm. you're just causing hormonal wreckage. You're yeah. not digesting. And yeah. it's really not on any quality muscle. Yeah. And that would be, I would love if I could revert back time into my twenties and understand that. Um, because I felt that I felt stronger when I had more poor calories and that let me do that in my twenties. But by the time I was in my mid thirties, not only was it affecting my blood work, but it was also not making me any stronger. Yeah. Yeah. You start spinning your wheels. I would have not only carried more muscle tissue, but I also would have sustained higher health parameters with even higher performance. Yeah. I love that. So that's, that's cool. I was actually going to ask you if you can go back in your training history, if there's one thing you could change, would it be that you'd, you'd try a higher quality uh, foods, more nutrient dense stuff in the twenties? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I and I was just starting to learn that in school and I didn't know the impact it was going to have until I was at the later end of my career. Mm -hmm. And I went from 315 down to 292 and I was stronger because huh. I had pulled inflammation off. Right. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. that was a good wake up call. You know, you cannot put strength in front of health or at the end of the day, you'll have neither. Yeah, true. That's well said. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so similar question, talking about coaching. I mean, I, I don't personally, my coaching has evolved. Well, it's still evolving. But uh, what are the main differences in how you coach an athlete from the early days into today, man? Well, it's just having a higher degree of awareness of the whole day versus just the training session. Yeah, I think you put so much importance on the session, but you're not putting importance on the other 23 hours. And so I find that as I've gotten older and smarter, I find that sometimes or most times the Swiss cheese hole and what's going on that's wrong is not in the gym. It's actually located in the lifestyle outside of the gym, the mm -hmm. sleep parameter, eating parameters, stress management. All of those factors play a humongous role in the type of workout that you're going to be able to make sustain mm -hmm. and grow from. So I always look at it like a glass of water. You know, if you have a big glass of water, but your stress and your energy level has been poured in half, you can only train to half that glass. You can't right. train like you have a full glass. And that's where I think a lot of people mess up is they don't think that they're going to have to make different job decisions to train hard. You will. They yeah. don't think 
going to have to go to bed early so they can squat good tomorrow. Eventually you will. Yeah. You have to be in situations where you're low stress. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend that's just constantly nagging you and wants to go out and party at night and doesn't come home till three in the morning, all that stuff affects your training the next day. Mm-hmm. So again, it's all about putting yourself in the proper environment to succeed. And I find that although we do see some problems with people's training style or programming, a lot of times it's those other things that are the issue. Right. I love that. Um, one of the things I want to segue into, and you have a guide on on anti-aging or training for 40 plus, and I want to ask you about that because um, I think... I feel like we're still kind of figuring this out. What is the ideal program kind of as a function of age? And I think it depends on your training age and all those pieces. When you start to build a program for someone that is getting into that age bracket, what are the major differences? If you compare that to like the the comp competitor in the twenties versus someone that's just kind of trying to get strong in their forties. Well, the first thing you look at is what was the previous mileage. So if this, sometimes mm-hmm. you're better off if a person doesn't have yeah. a lot of background, because then they're not going to have an ACL repair. They're not yeah, going to exactly. have, Back problems, less wear but tear. yeah, to be so sedentary, they have other problems. Mm. So I think a lot of training somebody in their forties and above, really anybody, but especially that that particular age group, you have to be even more aware of postural deficiencies. Mm-hmm. So you know, lordosis, kyphosis, you have to be yeah. more aware of the right imbalances because the problem is the aging process, whether we want to or not, has already started. Yeah. So now do when you're developing your program is try your best to not accelerate that aging process, actually take it the opposite direction. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that's not done with intensity, that's done with volume. Yeah. So find is that the older you get and the bigger base that you build, you can start re- sustaining a little bit more volume, but a little bit less intensity. Right. Whether that's neurological degradation, just muscle. Uh, energy, you know, that you just don't have as much anymore. I mean, let's look at the average. I mean, I get there's a lot of different factors, but I mean, if a guy plays past 35 in the NFL, he's a freak. (laughs) So now you're looking at 40. And the problem is, is that you have to have a traction-based mindset with this particular group, meaning Mm. belt squats most of the time instead of free squats, Mm. Uh, doing reverse hypers and 45 degree back extensions more often Mm. than deadlifts. I'm not saying that you don't use those movements. You just have to be a little bit more sparing with them and try to figure out a way to hit those muscle groups without more compression. Right. Because in the reality, most people listening to this are not going to go and say, well, I'm not going to train you unless you get a full back MRI and I see every disc and I see your, (laughs) you're not going to do that, Yeah. but maybe you should because you Oh, if L2 and L3 are smashed, and now you're going to cause a humongous, you know, ripple effect of problems because oh, yeah. you didn't good look at their skeletal system. Yeah. So what I find is that the first six or eight months that I train people, I put them in what I consider stupid proof movements that are not mm. going to create mileage. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of in that particular age group, back extensions, 45 degree back extensions. Glute ham raise extensions or glute ham raises if they're strong or light enough. Yeah. Belt squats, um, um, reverse hypers, sled dragging. Yeah. Um, so you're seeing my point. Everything that we're using is more traction based. And then the big thing that we do with all athletes, but especially people over 40 years old, is we always calculate the volume 
of front to back ratio. So I make sure that if we do something that could be quad dominant, they're doing twice as much hamstring work. Yeah. If they're doing, say, 2,000 pounds of pressing work, they're going to do 4,000 pounds of back work. Mm. And that's at minimum. Yeah. So those calculations always have to play into your mind when training that particular group of people because you don't want to accelerate gravitational postural problems. And you find yeah. that the average 40-year-old that goes and picks up a muscle and fiction you know, magazine, they're going, to, they're going to the mirror and they're not going to have any conception that they're advancing their postural deficiencies. Yeah. Uh, muscle and fiction. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's... No, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just kind of to, to spin off of that a little bit. You you mentioned the deadlift, and obviously we do need to kind of manage volume. I think as we get older, and um, do you would you like maybe to a lesser extent program a little bit more of of sumo lifts as opposed to conventional deadlifts for for someone that's had a back history, or or um, oh. is it mo more of the assistance movements? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's another big key is you know sumo deadlift. People, you know, especially in the performance runs, well, that's cheating because of range of motion. Well, let me tell you, most people don't have that level of flexibility, and that's why mm. yeah. they have problems. So yeah. if we look, is the number one cause of lower back issues. So we know 85% of the population is going to suffer a debilitating back issue at some point in their life. Yeah. The number one cause of back problems is hip mobility. Mm. So 100%. if oh, the sumo deadlift enhances hip mobility when done correctly, as long as you don't have ape length arms and you're not perfectly built to deadlift, the sumo deadlift for most people is much harder position to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in any sort of a deficit. So mm -hmm. I find that once the person's prepared, sumo deadlifts is, is key. The other key is double overhand. You want to get mm -hmm. the central nervous system in the hands to be the limiting factor for the first year to two years of training. So if I'm doing a mixed grip deadlift with an advanced age person, I'm already causing all kinds of imbalances just because of the grip, number one. Right. Number two, I'm negating when their brain is telling them to shut off, which is mm. directly connected to your hands. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, huge fat, I'm a huge component of getting the hands strong before the rest of the body yeah. because you create a, uh, almost a governor in the average person that hasn't had a lot of weight training by making sure that grip is always the issue. Yeah, yeah. That's super smart, especially if you look at the correlations that we're seeing now with grip strength and cardiovascular fitness and even falls and mortality. It's it's crazy. It's like, I think it, grip strength is a higher teller for, for death than cardiovascular fitness and end of life. It's wild. So glad that somebody in the medical field finally pulled their head out of the ass and started yeah. doing some research. Yeah. Because that's going to, that, that won't happen immediately, but that's going to turn everything on its back in the medical yeah. field. 100%. That study yeah. was valid and keeps reproducing the same result because yeah. Cooper and all these other people back 60 years ago mm -hmm. completely bastardized strength training and told everybody it wasn't going to make you healthier mm -hmm. and told yeah. everybody to make you better. And that the medical field flocked onto it like, you know, like a dozen rats on a, on a spoiled sandwich. So <laughs> we, we need to have strength yeah. to be in the medical field and this is one giant leap for that yeah absolutely 100 percent agree uh this is this has been awesome matt what, what's on top for for winning strength for the rest of the year do you have new products come out is there any more pdfs we can look forward to what do you yeah. guys got going on so i have a new the new power power building hypertrophy phase two awesome. that i just finished that's when i did the tom platt squat so 
Um, for those of you guys that didn't see, I did uh, 520 pounds on squat for 24 reps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Talk about he had cardio. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine holding 520 pounds for two minutes. That's that's cardio. That is wild. Yeah. But long story short, um, we have the power building, the new power building phase two manual is going to come out. Cool. I have a retirement manual, which is going to be for 65 plus, which I'm actually designing off my mom because she's living with me right now. Oh, so cool. I take her gym every time I go and then we're making a program. I'm seeing what she can handle because she's 66 and never lifted weights. Wow. So to see what she can do in a matter of time, yeah. she's down, she's down nine pounds and she's already benching 65 pounds for like sets of eight. That's and she unreal. A hundred pounds for five sets of five. Huh? That's crazy. Wow. Never before. So in four weeks, it's pretty interesting watching her change, but yeah. we're developing completely off of that, which is 100% for 65 plus retirement. Oh, I love that. Up. Um, I'm, I have not yet signed the contract, but did a handshake agreement that I will write a conjugate book for human kinetics. Oh, amazing. So it's going to be college level. So it's going to be cool. uh, a hell of an undertaking. I'm not so sure that the monetary value is there, but to be a published author is kind of one of those check marks off of the old resume, you know? For sure. That's unreal. Very cool. So that's what we got going on. Obviously, the Train Heroic and Patreon are growing like crazy. Yeah. It's just eight workouts for a very affordable price. Yeah. So if you have the time or energy to learn how to rotate stuff, we do it in a very educated fashion on Train Heroic with videos mm -hmm. on how to do the exercises for 30 bucks a month. I mean, it's... That's tough it's, to beat. And then on the other side, Patreon allows people to have Q&A directly to me mm. and see the workouts that I'm doing, plus all the YouTube videos with extended cuts and special projects like, you know, we're doing, uh, um, we take the, the YouTube videos and go above and beyond another five, 10 minutes into the video. Um, and then we do also stuff like special discounts and I'll go deep into programming or squat technique or all these different areas. And those videos are for Patreon only. Cool. Amazing. Love that. We'll, we'll be on the lookout for that. Matt, talk me through a little bit of your, your personal health and wellness priorities. Obviously, strength is near the top of the list. What are the other priorities around your health that you tend to, to focus on prioritizing? What do your habits look like around that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think health is really a co combination of your sleep habits, your training habits, and your eating habits. Mm -hmm. So I try to keep my eating habits as clean as I possibly can because I'd like to stay bigger and stronger. I'll be 43 this year. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to stay looking the exact same in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, but with that being said, you know, the, the program has always been about longevity and just lasting longer. So mm -hmm. um, every six months to a year, depending on what my doc says, I go in and get blood work drawn, tells me things I need to change, add or subtract, which the diet is pretty clean now. So that's not a huge issue. Mm -hmm. um, the sleep has always been a huge priority. Um, so I try to always lay down. As you can see, there's no lights on at my house. Mm. So when the sun's down, I'm down. Yeah. Um, so I just try to keep maintain all of that. Um, you know, just trying to keep everything as healthy as I possibly can without putting any excessive mileage on anything per se. And that's been a huge help by rotating the exercises that I do. Because yeah. it'll strain and keep, keep pushing even into my older years. But I've, no I've noticed that I don't have the mileage that other people have. And that's a true testament to the rotation of exercises. And I hope that one day, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen in my generation, but I hope that one day people start to wise up and start realizing that 
specificity in many ways is the major killer of your goals because it allows you to only think so narrow-minded in how to get where you want to be. Creating that general base, that big pyramid that we talked about earlier is is huge in order to sustain things. Because usually I always say this all the time, but the one that gets the strongest is the one that can do it the longest. Yeah. You know, if you, if training program only allows you to train like that for three years, you're not going to beat somebody that can do it for 15. Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. I think that's the telltale sign someone that's been doing this for a while. I think the kind of junior coaches find a program that works and like, oh, this is what everybody's got to do. And it's, uh, you know, you, you forget about the mileage and that's not on your radar, but yeah, I yeah. love it. Absolutely love that. It's, it's a mixture of, it's a mixture of lack of education. It's a mixture of most coaches have never been to that level. So yeah. they don't know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And then I would say on top of all of that, and most of it is laziness. I mean, mm-hmm. how hard was it for me at 19, 20 and up to 26 to pick up books and actually just read? Yeah. You know, it's like True. everybody wants everything handed to them, yeah. but you dig through the books and, you know, you know, people get upset sometimes because I make people join Patreon for questions and things like that. I'm like, you're not paying me on Patreon for questions. You're paying me for the 30 years of experimentation <laughs> that I had yeah. to do to answer your question. Yeah, seriously. So if people get upset with me about it, I automatically know what their position is on stuff, and I don't want them around me anyway. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you honestly can't replace that, that experience. Uh, well, Matt, this has been an unreal chat. What's the best way for people to follow your content? Yeah, well, um, go on winningstrength.com. So W E N N I N G. Obviously, we post a ton of stuff on YouTube. That's Winning Strength YouTube channel. We have 350 videos on there. And I'm sure that no matter what question somebody has, if they were to take the time and look through those videos, they're going to find the answer. Got to be in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Then I post all the exercises within reason of what I do on Instagram. So that's Real Matt Winning. So yeah. we probably four or five times a day on that, on that particular channel. Um, so the website, YouTube, and Instagram are pretty much our biggest. Uh, satellites to get out to people. Amazing. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Matt, thanks so much for the time. It's been a great chat, man. All right, man. No problem. Cheers. All right. Thanks for tuning in this episode of Hellspin Academy, guys. And we'll see you next time. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for supporting this channel. This has been a fun project. We are growing in viewership every single week, and we obviously couldn't do that without you. So thank you for continuing to tune in. I really hope you're getting value out of the, the programming and the content. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I've been working on a, a book on health and longevity the last couple of years, been collaborating with my colleague, Dr. Dan Vitale, who's uh, an expert in the field as well. And we, we've basically just kind of summarized the literature, some of the techniques that we found really useful in the world of biohacking, what our exercise regimen looks like, what's, you know, cardio type stuff is going to help us live longer and healthier, mobility work, nutrition. We've covered the whole spectrum, everything that you can basically be in control of in your health and fitness kind of moving forward to help you live as healthily as possible for as long as possible. And it's available free for download. So if you click on the YouTube banner, you'll see a link to download the, the blueprint. It's also on our Instagram profile or on the website. You can click on fivepillarmethod.com slash optimize to get your free copy of the book. And I hope you enjoy it. Hope you're keeping well. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.